Our scripture reading for today is found in 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love of the, for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world has its desires. It passes away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Bernice. All right, will you please pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us uh, not just letters, but that you've given us poetry uh, and that you use these different uh, parts of your word to speak to us, to encourage us, uh, and to point us to what, um, how, how your people should live. And so we ask that you would help us this morning to understand, not just understand intellectually, but that, that our hearts would respond uh, by what we see written uh, here uh, in this portion of First John. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. If you know uh, me at all, a little bit, even if you know me a little bit, you'll know that I love to read. Uh, I am constantly reading books. I think I've got like four or five books that I'm working on right now. I just started a new one last night. I just can't help myself. Um, and so um, a couple years ago, I was having a conversation with my mom and she told me a story that I did not know. So Mrs. Gast was my third grade teacher. All right. I'm actually surprised I remember her name because I don't think I could tell you the name of my fourth grade teacher or my second grade teacher, but I remember Mrs. Gass, my third grade teacher. The story my mom tells me is that uh, on one particular day, I uh, came home from school and Mrs. Gast, I, what I related to my mom is that Mrs. Gast, I just finished reading a book uh, and it was one of those books that you, you know, you're reading while you're in class and I handed it back to her and she praised me and said, Omar, you are such a great reader. And then she proceeded to give me another book. And so I came home and my mom said, you have not stopped reading since. Uh, so uh, Mrs. Gass praised me and then she did the one thing that she could do to reinforce the behavior she was praising, she gave me a book. Uh, now I don't know, maybe you've had a Mrs. Gast in your life, maybe you had a third grade teacher that had a really uh, profound impact on you, that pointed you in a certain direction, praised you and then pointed you in a certain direction. Maybe it was a coach for a team that you were playing on, maybe it was a, a college professor, I actually had a college professor who had that kind of impact on me as well. Uh, maybe, it, maybe it was in, in, your, in your particular field. You've had a mentor or a boss or a supervisor that has 
praised you and come alongside you and equipped you to move in a particular direction. Uh, That is what John is doing with this poem uh, and the next passage right after it. Uh, What John is doing is he is praising the churches in Asia Minor for the fruit of the gospel that's already been bearing in their lives. That's the poem. And then he immediately takes that and says, okay, so let me point you in the direction that you should go. Uh, Praise that points you in a certain direction. That is what uh, we're we're seeing here in this particular passage. So what we're going to do is we're going to look first at the poem. Uh, And here we're going to see that God is, not God, that John is praising them for their love of God. And then we're going to look at the few verses right after it. And we're going to see that John is pointing them away from a certain type of love for the world. All right. So those are the two things that we're going to do. Uh, So the first thing that you're going to wonder, right, it's like this is a kind of a strange poem. Like there's a kind of quite like what exactly is going on here. Uh, It's very highly stylized poetry. And, and, you know, like here's the difference, right? So um, imagine that I write you a note, not me, because that would be weird, but imagine that someone that loves you writes you a note and all it says is, I love you. That's like, man, wow, that's special, right? But now imagine that that person writes you a poem, And the poem says, I love you, right? And so all of a sudden, even though both things are communicating, I love you, a poem has a way of communicating, I love you with greater depth than the simple three words, I love you. And that is what John is doing here. John could say, hey, you guys are doing a great job. But instead of saying, hey, you guys are doing a great job, he writes a poem. And in writing this poem, he is driving home Uh, a certain point about the fruit of the gospel at work in their lives. So who's he talking to? Because you've got repeated use of the word children. You see that in verse 12 and then in verse 14. And then you have fathers and young men, again, in verse 13 and in verses 14. And you have all these different, like, things that are being attributed. So in the letter of John, John uses the phrase, dear children, nine times. Okay, so if you take these two out of the equation, we have seven other times where the phrase dear children shows up in the letter of John. And in every single one of those other instances, dear children refers to the entire audience. So it's women and men, uh, young and old, that are receiving this letter in the churches of Asia Minor. They're all getting this message and it's being addressed to everybody. Uh, So the first thing that we recognize is that at least that part of the phrase, of these phrases, is addressed to everybody. So then the question is, What about the phrase fathers and young men? As you can imagine, a lot of people have written a lot of things about the meaning of these two things. And I'm not going to go down that trail with you. Um, I think, and this is what the majority of people think, that given the fact that he starts off by saying, dear children, that then he is simply using the, the terms of fathers and young men to address everybody, but that he's using those terms not in terms of their gender, but in terms of their age or their maturity, right? So fathers is speaking to those who are older in terms of years and perhaps also more mature because of their age, and that young men is referring to those who are younger in terms of their age and perhaps not as mature, but certainly have a great amount of zeal for the Lord. 
And so the poem is addressing women and men, boys and girls, the entire age spectrum, uh, both, both genders, right? Uh, and saying something about the fruit of the gospel in their life. All right, so that's the who. What about the what? So who, what, what is he saying here? And what he is saying here is the, fruit, the gospel is bearing fruit in your life. That's like that bottom line, the gospel, it's doing its work in your life. Now, the way he does that is by highlighting a few things. So he says that there is a confession of, of sin for the forgiveness of sin. He talks about their knowledge of God the Father, their knowledge of the Son, which has been from the beginning. He talks about the indwelling of God's word in their life. They're, they're spending time in God's word. And he talks about their victory over the evil one. And what's interesting is that John is taking all of these different ideas that are scattered throughout his letter. He takes all these ideas and he's actually like condensing them in this poem. Uh, so the poem is actually, in a sense, it's like the summary of the rest of the letter. Uh, and what he's saying is, hey, Looking at this poem, if you look at the poem, what you're going to see is all of these different themes that are showing up. Um, Joseph, could you do me a favor? Could you take that? Go back one slide. I'm not ready for that slide just yet. Um, so what you're going to see here is, for example, forgiveness of sin is dealt with in 1 John uh, 1, 1 John 2 and 1 John 4, 1 John 2, 2 and 1 John 4, 10. Knowing God from the beginning, whether it's God the Father or the Son, that's, or, that he mentions that in 1 John 1, 1 and 2, uh, 1 John 2, 7 and 1 John 2, 24. Victory over the evil one hasn't shown up yet. So what, what have I told you if you've been here for the last several weeks? What have I told, how does John write? Does John write, you know, Point one, point two, point three, point four. No, that's not how John writes, right? John is arguing in a circular fashion. And so what ends up happening is he'll say something and then he's gonna come back around and he's gonna say it again, but he's going to add a little nuance to it. And then he's gonna come around and say it again. Well, this is the first time he's introducing a new topic now, victory over the evil one, and guess what? He's gonna come back to it. He's going to come back to it in chapter 4. He's going to come back to it in chapter 5. In chapter 4, he's going to say this. He says, dear children, right? He's talking to everybody. You, dear children, are from God. So that's, not, that's belonging to God from the beginning is, boom, you know, check, right? Uh, and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So he's beginning a new cycle for us that's going to emerge again a couple times in the rest of the letter. Now, what's really fascinating about this is that this is really in contrast to everything. There's, a, there's actually a sharp contrast to everything that we've seen in the letter so far. Now, will you please show me that slide? Um, so what, think about what he has said so far. What he has said so far is like, if you claim to have fellowship with God but walk in darkness, you're a liar. If you claim to be without sin, you're lying to yourself. If you are, say that you've not sinned, you're making God a liar. If you claim to know God but don't do what he says, the truth is not in you. If you hate your brother or sister, you're walking in darkness. Like that's been the letter so far. 
right? Like, you, you, know, you get a letter from somebody and they're like, you know, if you do this, if you do that, you're a liar, you're deceived, the truth is not in you, you're walking in darkness. You're just like, oh, like sucker punch, right? And then all of a sudden, John says this. He says, but I know that's not true about you. But that's what he's saying with this poem. What he's saying with the poem is the fruit of the gospel is alive and well in you, and I know that that's the case. So he's, he's coming on strong, and then he's bringing them this sweet, cooling drink to refresh their souls. This is the fruit of the gospel at work in your heart. Because this is the gospel. The gospel is not just um, Jesus died on the cross for your sin. It is that, but it's more than that. right? It's also this news, this message that shapes the way that we live our lives, right? That, that what we believe actually translates into a way of life that is different. Not so that we can be saved, but because we have been saved. It's what we talked about earlier in the service, right? Uh, and, and so you're seeing this fruit, and John is taking a moment here and saying, this is the evidence of God's working in you that I see. And I'll be honest with you, like I've been, you know, I've been working on this passage all week. And one of the things that I've been thinking through is like, man, like how, if I were John and I were to write something like this, I didn't write poetry, I'm sorry. I don't have, I have, I have very few poems under my belt uh, in my life. Um, but I did start thinking like how, like if I were to, if I were to write and say like, where do I see the fruit of the gospel at work in harbor? Uh, I would totally echo, this is not a cop-out, I actually have something else, but I would echo everything that John has said, right? The confession of uh, forgiveness of sin, confession for the forgiveness of sin, knowing the Father, knowing the Son, the indwelling of God's work, victory over the evil one. But then on top of that, I would add, that, that there is an expression of hospitality at this church uh, that welcomes people in really genuine ways. It's interesting, Kate and I both in the last two or three weeks, uh, there's been a number of, of, of folks that have been coming to the church, checking out the church for the first time, who've only been here for a short period of time. And, and both of us separately from one another have had people communicate and tell us like, man, people here are really welcoming. And I can say, yes, that's true, because, because that's what we've experienced uh, in the first year and a half, a little bit over a year and a half that we have been here. Like, there's, there's a genuine hospitality and gracious welcome that uh, is really, really evident. And that's even more striking because of the other thing that I would praise Harbor for. It's the diversity that we have. Like, there is a diversity across, um, oh, where's my list? There's a diversity across uh, political, right? We're, we're across the spectrum politically. We're across the spectrum socioeconomically. Uh, we're across the spectrum generationally. We have people who come from different uh, races and ethnicities. And, and, there, but, and but in the midst of that, right, there's this desire, there's this pursuit of hospitality that is, can I just tell you, like, I, I've been a lot, you know, I've been in a few churches. Not every church has this, Right? Uh, and, and so that is the fruit of the gospel at work in our midst. And we should give praise to God for that, 
right? Uh, so now what John does is he's, he's saying like, hey, well done, everybody. This is really amazing to see the fruit of the gospel at work in your lives. Harbor, the, 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 the gospel is bearing fruit in your life as well, right? This is, this is the evidence of God's mercy on you as well. And so then from there, he says, so now let me point you in a certain direction, right? Let me point you away from a certain type of love for the world. Now, uh, so here's what he says. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. For if anyone loves the world, love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So obviously we have to define the word world here. Because depending on how we define world, we're going to kind of go in a couple of different directions. So sometimes in the writing of Scripture and in the letters of John, the writing of John, uh, the word world refers to the created order, right? It, it refers to creation and the things within creation. So it refers to trees and plants and people. Uh, and in that sense, I think we would say we are called to love the world in that sense, right? We are called to love, for example, we are called uh, to love people in the world. We talked about this last week. If you were here last week, we talked about the fact that, hey, we are called to love one another as Christians. We are called to love our neighbor. We are called to love our enemies. So that pretty much covers everybody, right? Uh, and so we're called to love people in the world. Also, I think it's fair to say if we're supposed to reflect God, if we're supposed to be image bearers of God, and we are, uh, that, that the way in which God loves the world is also a part of what we reflect in, uh, in the way that we live our lives. So, for example, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his son. Uh, well, we can't love the world in that kind of redemptive way, but when we talk to other people about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, uh, when we have gospel conversations, that is an expression of loving the world. By the same token, earlier in the Bible, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, there you see that God, when he created Adam and Eve, that he gave them a mandate. He gave them a commission. He said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Uh, and so when we follow that commission that he then reiterates to Abraham, he reiterates to Noah, to Noah and then to Abraham, uh, when we follow that commission, when we do that work, right, so that when, when we do our work, our vocation, our calling to the Lord, uh, when, we, when we serve in different capacities, right, when we do that work of stewarding creation, that uh, we are loving the world in a way that is good, proper, and right, uh, as the people of God. And then finally, uh, caring for the environment, right? Uh, we are stewards of creation. Creation was given to mankind to be a steward of. And so we, we, stay, we, uh, we reject on the one side a posture that says, let's, let's get every last resource out of the earth in order, to, in order to fatten our profit margins. But by the same token, on the other side, we reject a posture that says care of creation is the only thing that matters and the flourishing of people doesn't matter at all. And we stand in the middle and says scripture calls us to steward creation and use it for human flourishing, but to, to care for it in the process, right? That's, that's a proper way in which Christians are called 
to love the world. So, so when John is saying, hey, don't love the world, he doesn't mean that. Right? That would, that would be contrary to lots of other things that we see in Scripture. So what does he mean? Well, we have to come up with the other definition in which the way world is used in the writings of John and in the teaching of Scripture. And sometimes the word world is used to describe systemic sin. Uh, sometimes the word world is used to describe systems or strongholds of sin that permeate human society. And in that sense, we are not to love the world, right? To, to love the world. And so John unpacks that for us. So remember, we got this like circular thing that John is doing, right? So earlier he talked about walking in darkness. And he says, those who walk in darkness are not living in the light. God is light. The light expounds the dark. The, the light pushes out the darkness. Now he talked in the last section about love of the Father. And so now he's taking love of the Father and he's contrasting it with love of the world. And he says, hey, those who love the Father do not love the world in what way, right? You absolutely love the world in the way of loving people, loving creation, a great commission, cultural mandate, all the stuff that I just talked about. But we don't love the world from the standpoint of saying that the, the, the systems of evil and the desires then become our desires. And that, that's what becomes really clear when you look at verse 16. For everything in the world, well, what specifically does he have in mind when he uses that phrase? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So the NIV uh, translates the word uh, lust there two times in uh, verse 16, and the vast majority of translations use the word lust there. The ESV gives us a slightly different vantage point. The ESV translates it as desires, and the New Living Translation translates it as craving. So I think if we take those three words, Lust, desires, and cravings, you kind of like, you know, overlap them in, in the terms of their, the range of meaning that those words can have. You begin to get a sense of what John is talking about. John is talking about desires, over, overarching desires that we have. And what he is saying is the desires for the pride of life, the, the, the desires for the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life that push out the love of God are the desires of this world that we are not to pursue. That kind of love of the world is contrary to what it means to be a follower of Jesus because the, these deep desires end up pushing the love of God out. Sometimes uh, we will refer to these deep desires as idolatries, right? Idolatry is anything that we put in the place of God, anything that we worship, anything that we value, anything that we say, if I don't have this, then I can't go on. Uh, these desires, these overarching desires are the things that push out love of God. So uh, we could, if we wanted to, we can kind of go drill down into what each of these things mean. I'm not going to drill too far down, but I do want to give you some like hooks for you to be thinking through. Right, So what, what are the cravings or the desires or the lust of the body, which at least in our society are the ones that have a lot of heat right now? And so I would say some would be uh, food, uh, pleasure, sex, leisure, 
What about those cravings of the eyes? It would be desires for beauty or fashionable or to have the most Instagrammable life. And the pride of life would be uh, pride over our beliefs, right? Pride over our politics. Augustine of Hippo is a a really important African pastor uh, from the early church period. Uh, He was the bishop in the city of Hippo. And uh, he says this, reflecting on this passage, he says, the pride of life is the wish to be loved and feared by people for no other reason than for the joy of having that power. But what's really fascinating about what Augustine says is that when he like encapsulates it all, he says, this is all a wretched life. How is it a wretched life? It's a wretched life because John says, these desires pass away. These desires pass away. So see, the love of the world is actually a, it's a selfish love, right? It's a love of the world for self. It's a love of the world for the things that the world will give me. And if you've pursued that in any way, shape, or form, you know there's no satisfaction there. Right? It's, it's fascinating. I follow a couple of different periodicals, and one of the ones that I follow is the New York Times. And every now and then, you get these very, very honest uh, op-ed pieces in the New York Times where people say, hey, yeah, I, pr- I, I went down that road that I thought I was supposed to go down, and, and I, am, I am longing for something more transcendent. You know, it's amazing to see these moments of honest self-reflection when society recognizes the love of the world, the lust of the, uh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the body, the pride of life, it ends up passing away. There's nothing wrong with a good meal, but to live for the next great meal, that's what we call love of the world, right? What some have called worldliness. There's nothing wrong with sex, but to live for sex There's nothing wrong with looking nice, but to live to be this kind of persona. There's nothing wrong with having a great job, but to live for your career. There's nothing wrong with having a good time and and enjoying leisure, but to live for leisure, to live for leisure is to love the world. And those things pass away. So the remedy is love of God. So this is really fascinating if you stop and think about it, right? Love of the world is inward facing. Love of the world is self-focused. But love of God is by definition other focused. Because the truest expression of the love of God is the love that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have had eternally with one another. From before the beginning of time, the love of God is an other focused love. That is the definition of the love of God. And that love of God then gets expressed in his creation of women and men and then in his redemption of those people when they rebelled against him. Greater love, this is 1 John, greater love has no one than this, that he should lay down his life for his friends. This is the love of God expressed. And so when when you seek to love the world, the love of God gets pushed out. But when we seek to love the Father, when we seek to love God, 
then we have the right ability to love the world the way that it needs to be loved. Because we're not saying you don't love the world, right? Christianity does not teach, don't love the world. It doesn't teach that. There are perversions of Christianity that teach that, but they are perversions. What Christianity teaches is love the world, but love the world as it is focused through the lens of loving the Father, loving God, loving Jesus, loving the Spirit. Right? So that when you love the world, it passes away. And what ends up happening as it passes away is that you end up with neither the world or with God. But when you love God and through your love of God, through our love of God, we end up loving the world rightly, we get both. How do we get both? Because the end of the story is the story of God taking this world and its brokenness and making it new. And so through our love of God, we, we wrestle in this life. Let's just be honest, right? Like we all wrestle with wanting to live for those things. Let's be honest, right? But God knows that. Uh, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us unrighteousness. We talked about that two weeks ago. So we can be honest about the struggle, but what we're pursuing is the love of God and then through that love, we love the world properly. And in that then, we get to enjoy this world as it is now, but even better, even better, we're going to get to enjoy this world as it will be when Jesus comes back and makes all things new. And so you see what John is pointing us to, what John is inviting us into. He's saying, hey, you guys, great job. You love God really well. And the fruit of that is evident in your life. I see it. I see the way that you are, you've known God from the beginning. I see the way in which you are confessing your sin. I see the victory that you have over the evil in Harvard. I see the hospitality with which you engage people. I see the way that you struggle to live out this diversity in a time when that's really hard. Praise God. That's the fruit of the gospel. Now take that and go love the world. But don't love the world in a way that takes those good things and drowns them out. Not a self-centered, self-focused, craving, desire-filled, lust of the eyes, lust of the body, pride of life kind of love. But a love that begins with the love of God and then through the love of God ends up loving the world rightly. I doubt very much that if Mrs. Gast had told me as a third grader when I turned that book in, you need to read more books. Uh, maybe I would still read. Probably I still would. I don't know. But I wouldn't be using that story this many years later. My mom wouldn't have shared that with me. It wouldn't have shaped my life. But I can tell you that because she praised me and then pointed me in the direction that I should go, that Mrs. Gass changed the course of my life. Church, John is seeking to have an even greater influence over us. Praise God for the fruit that is at work in you and allow that fruit to continue to bear so that as that fruit bears, you can love the world. So it's not love of the world versus love of God. The title is actually, as the more I thought about it, I was like, that's not the best title for this sermon. Um, it's actually love 
the world by loving God. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, Gracious God in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who has loved us so much. And we thank you that in your love for us that you, uh, that you take moments and you actually stop and acknowledge uh, that love in our lives. Uh, Father, we, we ask that you would please help us uh, to first of all um, really absorb passages like this where, where we see how the gospel does bear fruit and how the gospel does help us uh, to grow, that the gospel does change the way in which we live our lives. And then, Lord, we ask that you would please help us that as we see that, then that as we experience and sit in the reality that your love for us is bearing fruit, that you would please help us to channel that love, not for self, but that you would help us to channel that love, to love the world uh, the way that you call us to, uh, and to refrain from loving the world in ways that are ultimately destructive and will pass away. Uh, If you do this, Lord, we'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.